Good evening, everyone. Thank you very, very much for coming. Uh, my name is Reginald Harris. I'd like to welcome you to the Pratt Library. This is one of our series of author programs and other programs that we have at this uh, branch of the library. It is a pleasure to welcome uh, Neil Sheehan to Pratt to discuss his new book, A Fiery Peace in a Cold War, Bernard Schriever and the Ultimate Weapon. As he did in his previous book, the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winning A Bright Shining Lie, John Paul Van and America in Vietnam, author Neil Sheehan uses the life of one extraordinary person to illuminate an entire era of U.S. history. The focus in A Fiery Peace in a Cold War is on Air Force General Bernard Schriever, along with his circle of military aides, civilians, defense intellectuals, and aerospace entrepreneurs who built America's intercontinental ballistic missile program in the 1950s and 60s and led the effort to prevent the Soviet Union from acquiring nuclear superiority. This never-before-told never story is also as much about conflicts between military contractors and superior officers within Schriever's own service branch, as well as the rivalry between the Army and the Air Force, as it is about the Cold War. She mixes biography and history, politics, and science to create a narrative of Schriever's quest to prevent the Soviet Union from acquiring nuclear, uh, nuclear superiority or more nuclear weapons, to penetrate and exploit space for America, and to build the first weapons meant to deter an atomic holocaust rather than to be fired in anger. Uh, Sheehan credits the ICBM program with keeping the peace and jump-starting the space program and the satellite industry. It is the personal stories of the individuals involved uh, in this narrative, like uh, Schriever and uh, General Curtis LeMay, uh, Werner von Braun, Stalin, Eisenhower, Khrushchev, and Kennedy, as well as uh, his portraits of Cold War politics up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, that helped make this epic tale also a very accessible, exciting, and compelling book of interest to anyone who wants to learn about the inner workings of the military-industrial complex. Author Neil Sheehan served in the U.S. Army from 1959 to 1962 when he began working at the United Press International's Tokyo Bureau. After two years covering the war in Vietnam as UPI's bureau chief, he joined the New York Times, becoming its Pentagon correspondent and later reporting on the White House. Sheehan obtained the secret U.S. Uh, Department of Defense history of the Vietnam War from Daniel Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg known as the Pentagon Papers and the expose earned the New York Times a Pulitzer Prize. Sheehan was awarded his own Pulitzer, as I mentioned, as well as the National Book Award in 1989 for A Bright Shining Lie about the life of Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Van and the United States' involvement during the Vietnam War. It is a very great honor for me to introduce Neil Sheehan. Thank you, Mr. Harris. You're very kind. And thank you all for coming here on a, on a winter's evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to be talking about a book, it's a portrait of the man. Uh, if you grew up in Massachusetts as I did, he's one of the first authors you, you get to read. And you don't forget it. He scares you for life. Were it not, uh, let me start out by saying that were it not for the accomplishments of Bernard Schriever and those who labored with him, we might not be sitting here tonight. <clears throat> we might instead be irradiated dust. Uh, let me start out again by also by saying how I came to write the book. I spent three years in Vietnam as a war correspondent. 
uh, two for the UPI and another year for the New York Times, and, and then uh, ended up writing a book on the war in Vietnam, A Bright Shining Lie. I went back to Vietnam in 1989 uh, with my wife after publishing the book, and then wrote a sequel called uh, After the War Is Over, Hanoi and Saigon. And then I had written all I wanted to write about Vietnam. I had written myself out. Um, and so I searched for another subject. I, I looked around for biography, and I couldn't find one that suited me. And one of my daughters said to me, Daddy, why don't you write a book on the military-industrial complex of the Cold War and the arms race? I said, my God, that's an awfully diffuse subject. Where do you find a narrative there? Uh, but I started to look around, and I was over in the Air Force uh, Association library across in Arlington, Virginia, across the river from Washington. And the library, the Air Force Association Library, keeps files on major figures in the Air Force. And someone said to me, you ought to look up Benny Shriver. He's an interesting guy. I never heard of him before. Uh, so I asked the librarian to give me the file, her file on General Shriver. And she produced it, and I f opened it up. And the first thing I saw was that photograph, which is in the book, of this general sitting on the edge of a table, surrounded by the models of all these missiles he'd built. And so I decided, this, this guy might be interesting. So I looked him up, and he turned out to be living eight blocks away from me in retirement. So I rang him up and asked if I could come around and interview him. He said, well, come on out over on Saturday morning before I, go out to play, before I go out to my golf club. And that was the first of 52 interviews with General Schriever. That was the first, as I said, of 52 interviews uh, with, with the general and also with uh, those who worked with him because they, he and they cooperated with me uh, fully. He, he told all the people he'd been associated with and he'd worked with over the years talk to this man, uh, tell him the truth. And uh, I was given access, I, I, got, I, I, I asked him for, uh, for all of his papers, he let me have them, uh, he, he kept the diary, um, which turned out to be critical. Um, and uh, the, I ended up interviewing altogether about 120 people uh, for the book, as well as going through a vast amount of research material, because I had, I had always dealt with, I had spent my life around the military, but I'd always dealt with the op so-called operational side of the military, not with the engineering side. Or, uh, and, and I also had, I, I had some acquaintanceship with the Cold War, but not really that in detail. And so I had to, 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 to do a great deal of reading about that too, was about the Soviet Union, the nature of the Soviet Union, uh, the nature of Joseph Stalin, and put it all, because I, I, want, I believe in putting the history together in a way that's, a f that, that, that's a, uh, the form is novelistic. Uh, you find a central figure through whom you can tell a, the story, a lens, uh, if you will, through whom you can see events, and then you, 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 you recreate uh, them for the reader, and you put the reader into history. Uh, it's something that uh, I first fell upon when I read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. I realized that you could write Nonfiction, in a novelistic form, and yet not, any, and still tell the truth in an exciting way. You could put the reader right there where it was happening. Uh, you have it's it's difficult. You have to be very careful that you don't distort things to fit your form. But if you do, but if you if you work hard at it, you can do it, and you 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 give the reader a, a driving fast narrative, personalities that matter, and and you. You, 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 as I say, you recreate history for the reader. Um, the, 
I, with Shriver, I realized that I could tell the story through him of a critical and overlooked period in the Cold War uh, when we had come close to Armageddon. Uh, the Cold War is now looked back on as a long ice age, but it wasn't. It, in the 1950s, it was a very warm, in the beginning of the 60s, it was a very warm and unstable confrontation uh, in, which we, in which if either side had, had made the wrong move, we would ha we, as I said, we wouldn't be here tonight. Um, the, both, we got the, the atomic bomb, of course, in 1945. The Russians quickly followed with a bomb, their A-bomb in 49. We, we built the H-bomb in 52. The Russians built theirs in 55. Um, the, 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 American, the American deterrent uh, to Soviet expansion, which was feared at the time, was based upon the bomber, uh, the Strategic Air Command under General Curtis LeMay, who had been the great bomber leader of World War II. Um, he, he believed that uh, the bomber was the ultimate weapon. Uh, it was something, I, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a late-night television film, 12 O'Clock High. It's worth seeing if you do, because you, you get the sense of the experience that Curtis LeMay went through during World War II, flying these bombers into Germany, where they would lose 40 planes on a mission, uh, and they'd be under attack for an hour and a half. He was a, uh, that was his experience, and he believed in the bomber. He built this, this phenomenal force called the Strategic Air Command. Uh, and in order to prevent, uh, in order to, to, to prevent the Soviets from, from uh, uh, adventurism, if you will, that might lead to, to, to a nuclear holocaust. But still, the, the, the period remained very unstable. Eisenhower feared a, a, a first strike by the so-called so surprise first strike by the Soviets. He referred to it as, a, he called it a nuclear Pearl Harbor. He lived in constant fear of it. And what LeMay didn't realize was that his airplanes were uh, being undermined by technology, about to be undermined by technology. The Soviets, he, LeMay assumed the Soviets would build a, a, a nuclear air force, an air force uh, like his, um, to compete with him uh, because he couldn't think beyond the bomber. But the Russians decided very quickly there was, no, there was no possibility of competing with the Americans in this field. They didn't have the bases around the world. They didn't have the manufacturing capacity. They, didn't, they, they had no experience in that kind. They did have experience with rockets. And so they started down the path to build. They decided that they would deliver their nuclear punch with an intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, which they started down the road to build. Now, what is an ICBM? It's a rocket that, that is launched up into space, uh, and it hurls a warhead at 16,000 miles an hour through space, uh, six to 7,000 miles, and then it comes down on its target. The warhead contains about at least a megaton, which is uh, a million tons of TNT, the equivalent of 80 Hiroshima bombs. And in the 1950s, the only warning you would have of one of these things coming in was 15 minutes because the radars were limited at the time and you could only pick up the missile when it was at its apogee, halfway. It was a 30-minute flight from, from the Soviet Union and you could only pick it up when it was at its apogee midway, mid-course, in other words. So you had 15 minutes to react. Uh, that would have undercut the credibility of the American deterrent, which is how are you going to get the planes off the ground in time? 
Uh, you only had 15 minutes. Now, you could, you could put some of these aircraft in the air. You could have airborne alerts, but you couldn't have the whole force up there. In any case, the idea of something that came in in 15 minutes and was unstoppable, there's still no way to stop an, an incoming missile. They keep trying and they keep failing. Uh, there was a test of, uh, most recently announced, again, another one of these tests, and they just keep failing. It's like trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. Um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the fact, if the Russians had acquired a, a, a sizable fleet of these things, and we didn't have anything like it to counter, counter it, uh, they would undercut the credibility of LeMay's deterrent, and uh, they would, it would lead to further instability and quite possibly adventurism by Soviet leaders, which would bring on nuclear war and the destruction of the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. Because we're not talking about uh, the destruction of a city, as we did with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By the time of the mid-50s and the beginning of the 60s, this country uh, had, uh, was prepared to drop on the Soviet Union, China, and the Eastern European states 2,400 megatons of thermonuclear explosive, hydrogen explosive. This would have thrown enough dirt up into the atmosphere to have blocked out the sun, created something called nuclear winter. You would have had no agriculture, no photosynthesis of trees. You had everything would have been, all the water resources in the northern hemisphere would have been poisoned. Every time it rained, more people would die from from radiation poisoning. Is this stuff because the the rain would bring down the irradiated dust, and it would be really the end of civilization as we know it. So, we we've got things we fear now. We fear terrorists, but they what we what we fear in the terrorists really pales in comparison to what we what was at stake in the Cold War, uh, and what. Uh, and what, what, what had to be dealt with sensibly uh, in order to avoid uh, literally the wiping out of, of all civilization. Um, uh, Schriever, who was the man who, who led the, 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 the effort to build the ICBM, uh, came here when he was six years old in February 1917 from Germany. Uh, his mother <clears throat> had been a young German woman in New York City, she met his dad, who was an engineer on the, North, on the German liner, on the, on the, in the North German Lloyd Line. His ship, ironically, was named the George Washington. And in August of 19... And she went back to Germany then, after she married him. And uh, she had two sons. And in 1914, August of 14, when the First World War broke out, his ship was trapped in New York Harbor, because although we were still uh, allegedly neutral... Uh, the British Navy would seize the ship the minute it, it uh, exited the harbor. So, he had, so they, were, they, were, they were trapped. She waited for the war to go on and end. And by 1916, it wasn't ending, and she got sick of waiting. So uh, in, in the end of 1916, she put her two sons uh, and herself on a Dutch... Holland was neutral in World War I. Uh, put herself on a Dutch lighter out of, out of Rotterdam. And Schriever... As a was just six years old. His youngest bro younger brother was just four. He remembered how they, they had to sail north of Scotland because they couldn't go through the English Channel. He remembered these huge towering waves. And they were stopped by a British patrol craft, and his mother was afraid that they were, the, British, and the British boarded the ship to inspect it for contraband. And his mother was afraid that they, the British uh, boarding party would, would take them off the ship because they were German nationals. Um, and, and, but for, fortunately, they, his younger brother had the mumps, 
and the Dutch, which is a terrible disease for uh, adult males. And uh, his, his Dutch crew told the British boarding party, stay away from that cabin, there's a kid in there with the mumps. Uh, so they got to New York. Uh, he remembered Schriever standing in the great hall at Ellis Island with his mother holding his hand and his brother's hand saying she spoke perfect English because she'd been here as a, as a young woman and lived in New York. But the boys only spoke German. She was afraid if they said anything in German, uh, they'd be sent back we, back to Germany because this was just two months before we declared war on Germany. He remembered his mother saying, don't speak, don't speak, holding the hands of the, of the two of them. He, they went down to Texas because... Uh, down near in the San Antonio area, there was a lot of German. There was a lot of German settlement. So there was a lot, much less anti-German feeling. Uh, the German t- towns are down there uh, in Lyndon Johnson's hill country, New Braunfels, Fredericksburg, etc. And so he grew up uh, in San Antonio. His mother, his father, was killed in an industrial accident um, in 1918, just just after they got there, and it was a terrible th- blow to the family. But his mother raised her two boys. Uh, first as a housekeeper, and then with a ham sandwich and soda pop stand next to the 12th green of the Brackenridge uh, Park golf course in San Antonio. Uh, She was quite an enterprising woman. Uh, Schriever uh, became a golf star himself. Um, he, uh, He was Texas Junior State Championship once, and San Antonio uh, City Championship champion twice. Um, he told me that it was enormously important in his life uh, for two reasons. One, it it um, it, it was a one. It gave him an, an an entree, if you will, because a lot of senior officers liked to play with a with a young man who was so good, because they had to have a handicap, and they wouldn't therefore they they wouldn't have to reach his score. Uh, and also, it taught him self-discipline, because they played 36 holes in a tournament in those years, uh, in one day. And as you know, a tournament can be lost from watching Tiger Woods. A tournament can be lost by one or two strokes. Uh, and Schriever explained to me, you really had to keep yourself under control. If you didn't control yourself, if you got out, let your, your, your nerves get out of hand, you were going to blow the tournament. And it really helped him later on when he was under tremendous stress building these missiles because these things would blow up on the pad. Eisenhower would be on the phone threatening him. Uh, but he, he would always keep his head. He was always cool. He was a very calm man. Um, and he, 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 um, he, he partially accredited golf for that. Um, he wanted to fly. And San Antonio was a military town in the 1920s and 30s. Fort Sam Houston was there. Uh, there was an army deten- deten- detachment there. As a boy, he would go out and watch these World War I tanks uh, maneuver against the horse cavalry on the, in the parade, great big parade ground at Fort Sam Houston. Or he'd go out and sit on the fence and watch the planes uh, flying at Kelly Field and then uh, at Randolph Field, which was built after, uh, as well by the Army Air Corps, which was very small in those years. Until 1938, we only had 1,500 officers in the whole of the Army Air Corps, including reservists. But he decided after going to Texas A&M, which was a, a military school, by the way, at the time, all students, except those physically unqualified, were required to wear military uniform, and they marched to and from breakfast and dinner. Uh, and he decided he wanted to be a flyer. And so in 1932, he joined the Army Air Corps. He went to flying school and was among the 50% who were not washed out. The washout rate was very high. Uh, 
uh, and in 33 he was commissioned and sent down out to 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 um, an airfield near Riverside, California, where his first commanding officer there was a man named Henry Hap Arnold, uh, lieutenant, then a lieutenant colonel, who became the commanding general of all the U.S. Army Air Forces of, of World War II. Uh, uh, and and his deputy was another uh, was a man named Carl Spotts, uh, who was the commanding general of all the Army Air Forces in Europe. A third one was was uh, uh, a man named Ira Aker. Uh, who was commanding general of the Mediterranean Air Forces. In other words, he joined a, an a elite organization of men who got to, all got to know each other, the older ones as well as the younger, and learned, their learned each other's capabilities. Arnold became a mentor to him. Arnold was a technological visionary. He could see how to apply technology to strategy and to strengthen the Air Force then the Air Corps, and therefore uh, bolster the security of the country. Schriever mentioned to me that in 1938 he left the Army Air Corps because he couldn't be certain of staying in. They only worked, they, they, they only, could only work half a day then uh, because there was no money to pay them for a full day. Um, they, uh, there was no money that is for, for, for fuel for the airplanes. They only flew four hours a month. Uh, so no one really knew how to fly. No one was really proficient among the younger men. Uh, but uh, in 1938, uh, after he left for a short period of time to marry the daughter of a general, and in order to raise a family, he became a, a commercial airline pilot for Northwest Airlines out of Spokane on the Billington, on the run up to Billington's, Billing, Billings, Montana. Um, Hap Arnold, who was then uh, about to become commander of the whole of the Army Air Corps, arranged a, for, a golf foursome with the president of Boeing and came out and, and, and urged Schriever to apply for, a, for the first time by 38. Congress was beginning to wake up to the threat that was approaching in Europe. And they were giving the Air Corps money to, 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 to bring in and promote more officers. And uh, they, they were going to open up an exam for regular officers. That is for a regular commission, not just a reserve commission. If you had a regular commission, you couldn't be just... Uh, turned out of work the next morning. We had permanent employment. Reservists could be, his, his, his tour could be ended at any moment at the discretion of the government. And Arnold came up and, and urged Schriever, he said, Benny, which was Schriever's nickname, invented by the newspaper men in San Antonio because they were tired of writing about Bernard. That wasn't snappy enough for golf sports writers. They needed something better, so it became Benny. Um, the, uh, he said, "I hope you'll apply for a regular commission because we we need to put we need to get an all-weather air force. We need to build create an all-weather air force, and the airlines are the only ones that are using instruments now and teaching you how to fly and having you fly at night." And Schriever said to me, "Here, here was a man, here was Arnold in 1938 talking about an all-weather air force, which of course would increase the strategic capabilities of this country enormously. And by 1948, we had it." When we needed it at Berlin, uh, there we, we, we had an Air Force that could fly night and day through snow, r rain, or sleet, uh, and, and made an enormous diff strategic difference in, 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 our, in our ability to, to hold on in Germany and defeat Stalin's attempt to push us out through the blockade of Berlin. Um, the, the, um, uh, Schriever was, was, was the same sort of person as Arnold. Arnold gave him the mission of keeping, during World War II, we, the, air, the armed forces 
marshaled civilian science um, in the effort to defeat the Nazis and the Japanese. Uh, they created institutions like the Radiation Laboratory at MIT, and, made it, and it was the civilians who made the civilian scientists who made the real technological progress. And Arnold s saw that, of course. And in 1940-46, when Schriever had distinguished himself to out in the Pacific and was now working at the Pentagon, Arnold called him to his office just before his own retirement and said to this young man, in effect, he, he passed on the mantle. He, he said, you will be in charge of setting up an office to keep contact with civilian scientists and bring technology into the post-war Air, Air Force that was about to become the U.S. Air Force. It, broke, it became independent in 1947. Uh, you will be in charge of, 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 of marshalling civilian talent to to enhance air power and therefore enhance the security of the country. It was a talent that Schriever had. He could, he could see, as Arnold could see, how you could apply technology in a way that would enhance the, that would have strategic consequences. In other words, Arnold's creation of an all-weather air force had the strategic consequence of us being able to hold on in Germany by breaking Stalin's blockade of Berlin. And with Schriever, it, he had that same insight. Um, he went to a, a meeting in 1953 of the Air Force Scientific Advisory Board. And at that meeting, two uh, scientists, one a man named John von Neumann, who invented uh, st stored programming for the computer, built the second electronic computer this country had um, up at the, the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, and also invented something uh, uh, called games theory, which was very important uh, later on in, 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 in modeling uh, uh, for economic modeling. A brilliant man. He, he had a, a, a mind which was really second only to Einstein's. Uh, he was very important in the building of the atomic bomb at Los Alamos during World War II and then in the building of the hydrogen bomb. He do phenomenal, vast calculations in his head in minutes. I mean, he was famous for walking through the corridors at Los Alamos, and he'd spot some equation. One of these, another scientist had written up on a wall, up on a blackboard, that he hadn't been able to solve. And von Neumann would walk in, and no slide rules, uh, and he would, he would start mumbling to himself and scratching numbers on a piece of paper, and, and within a few minutes he would have it. Uh, one one guy couldn't stand it any, uh, watching this one scientist who spent he spent a whole weekend working out the answer to an equation with the slide rule and, all, and here was von Neumann mumbling away getting it and he couldn't stand, the, stand it anymore and he interrupted him and he said is it? and he gave the, the answer and von Neumann just looked at him and then he went back to his mumbling and, uh, and then he came up with the answer then he turned to, and the man left the room and von Neumann turned to somebody else and said how did he get it that fast? He couldn't believe that anybody. Uh, he died in 1957 at the age of only 53, so you don't hear much about him now. The other man at that meeting in March of 1953 was a man named Edward Teller, whom all of you, I'm sure, have heard of, um, the, uh, who led a long and, and notorious life. Uh, but and what 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 both of them uh, did at the they gave a, they both gave a presentation at the, at the uh, at the meeting, in which they said that the H the hydrogen bomb which we had just recently acquired, could be down could be mini 
downsized. In other words, it, it, the, the first workable, uh, the first practical hydrogen bomb, weighed about 15 tons, and they they they, they predicted that with by the end of the decade, they could get a hydrogen bomb uh, equivalent to 80 Hiroshima's down to 1,500 pounds, uh, which made it practical to build a missile, because if the missile, if the warhead on the missile was too big, you'd have to build a vast, huge rocket, which, which uh, would be a totally impractical thing to deploy. But here they were saying that they could, they could create a warhead that could be put on a missile that could be fired six to 7,000 miles. Uh, and it, it lit a, a light in Schriever's head immediately. He saw that the utility of this, how you could now build an ICBM, which, had, which nobody had been able to do up to that point. And he engaged, he went up to see von Neumann at Princeton, where von Neumann was at the Institute for Advanced Studies, just to verify this. And when von Neumann verified it, he started to recruit others. Uh, one was, interestingly enough, the most important men in this story were all immigrants. Uh, Schriever was an immigrant. Von Neumann was a was a, was a was a refugee from Hitler's uh, Hitler's uh, 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 anti-Semitism, and the other major figure was a man named Trevor Gardner, who was a Welshman who emigrated into this to this country um, uh, after his dad didn't do so well running a boiler plant down in South America. Uh, his father was a boiler engineer. He went to Caltech and then ended up as Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Science and Technology and was one of the spark plugs that helped whom Schriever recruited to put the program together and to get it going. They started out at a, at a, at a, at a deserted, deserted, vacant uh, Catholic boys' school in Inglewood, California, out by the Los Angeles airport. Um, uh, the, their briefing room was the chapel, um, and they covered over the. They 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 they, they used, brought in plasterboard and, and covered over the the, the 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 stained glass windows because first for security reasons and also because it made them uncomfortable to be discussing this horrendous weapon uh, with all the saints looking down on them through the from these plate glass windows. Uh, they all wore civilian clothes. This, they started in '54 and mid '54. Um, they, uh, they for, for, to try to keep things secret, uh, the, the organization was known as the Western Development Division. There was no mention of rockets. The security precautions didn't work very well. One of the officers went across the street uh, to, to the bank to cash his check after a couple of months, and uh, in civvies, of course. And the bank teller, a good-looking young woman, said to him after she cashed the check and handed him his money, uh, we hope you guys don't blow us up over there. <laughs> <laughs> so much for hiding, uh, but they they, they discovered Schriever discovered very quickly um, that he couldn't really get anywhere with the program because the bureaucracy was stymieing him. He, he had to clear everything with forty two different agencies. Uh, this was post World War Two, and the bureaucracy had grown enormously, uh, and. He, so he wasn't getting anywhere. So they, and they, what they had to get was streamlined decision making, swift streamlined decision making, and swift streamlined funding, uh, which the Manhattan Project had had during World War II. And the only way you can, the only person who can give that to you is the president, in our system. And so they had to get to see Eisenhower. We don't just pick up the phone and ring it up and say, "Well, Mr. President, we'd like to come and see and brief you, brief you on our, pro- our project." You have to. 
it, you have to get the president. To, to, it's a long and involved process. So they launched an intrigue. Schriever leaked uh, uh, classified reports on, on all the problems he was having to a senator named Scoop, Henry Scoop Jackson, who was a hawk from, from uh, Washington State. He, uh, he was a domestic liberal and a, foreign, and a hawk in foreign policy. And uh, he held hearings at which von Neumann and uh, Trevor Gardner testified again about all the problems they were having. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, Jackson and another senator sent a letter to Eisenhower saying this is terribly important. The security of the country is, is at stake, and you really need to be briefed on this. So Eisenhower told the head of his security, security council staff, his national security advisor, to schedule a briefing for him for the whole National Security Council, uh, not knowing that the people who drafted the letter for Senator Jackson to sign were Schriever, von Neumann, and Gardner. Uh, and when, in fact, when they got to the White House to give the briefing, they were instructed the day before by the National Security Advisor, the head of the staff, that they were under no circumstances to refer to this letter in an attempt to put pressure on the president. Well, the briefing went off very well. Um, um, von Neumann and Gardner scared the living hell out of everybody in the room. And you're talking about the whole of the American establishment, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chairman, the Cabinet, Richard Nixon, the Vice President, uh, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, the head of CIA. I mean, the whole American power establishment is sitting in the room. And, and Gardner and von Neumann led off, and they both of them, and they, they scared the hell out of everybody with this unstoppable weapon that was, gonna, that was 50 minutes from doomsday uh, and how we had to do something about it. Uh, and then Schriever wrapped it up, uh, wrapped up the briefing uh, on, on, in terms of the problems they were facing and how, to, how they needed, what, what they needed to solve them. He was very, it didn't hurt him that he was a very ha- he was the handsomest general in the U.S. Air, U.S. Army Air Force. He was six foot three, uh, dark hair, uh, very 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 slim figure, uh, and very handsome features. And uh, like one, a New York Times reporter once compared him to Jimmy Stewart. Actually, I thought he was he was better looking than Jimmy Stewart. Um, and he wrapped it up, uh, uh, gave the final briefing, uh, final part of the briefing. He, they, they were totally only had half an hour. And by the time Shriver got up, they'd used up an hour. So he had to give the president uh, an opportunity to cut this briefing short. And they had a film, an eight-minute film of rocket testing out in California that they were going to show at the end of the briefing, very dramatic film of these rocket engines being tested. Um, And so Schriever, after saying saying a few words, said to the turn to the president, everybody else was sitting in straight-back wooden chairs in the room except for the president who was sitting in 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 a plush red leather covered armchair in the middle of the front row and Schriever uh, turned to the president and he said Mr. President we have this film it's eight minutes we'd like to run it if you are willing to give us the time after at the end of the briefing and by this time Eisenhower wasn't leaning back in the chair anymore he was sitting up on the edge of the edge of this armchair leaning forward and he was so intently interested in this and he nodded in other words take all the time you want son just tell me what's going on um, and at the end of the briefing, uh, uh, Eisenhower complimented them all on it and thanked them. He signed off on the procedures they needed, swift funding, swift decision-making, 
on September 13, 1955. The briefing was in July. Two weeks after he signed off, or 10 days after he signed off, excuse me, he had his first heart attack. And he couldn't hold another meeting for another two months, and that was in the shelter of Camp David. So the whole thing would have gone way off the rails. If, uh, the, the book is filled with these coincidences and characters. and uh, the, the, the whole thing would have gone totally off the rails if they hadn't gotten Eisenhower in time. The Soviets might have beat them in terms of uh, building, the race to build a workable ICBM. Uh, had, it not, had it not been for their initiative uh, and also for, for the good luck that they had. Um, the this, this story is filled with, uh, with ironies like this. For example, there, there are two figures in the book, uh, the Hall brothers. One was a young, man, a young, a young physics prodigy at, at Harvard named Theodore Hall. He was recruited when he was about 19 years old for the atomic bomb program at Los Alamos during World War II. And he was working in the most sensitive part of the program, the implosions, that is the, the pro, where they were working out how to make, uh, how to come up with a way to detonate a, a, a core of plutonium, uh, which was the basis for the Nagasaki bomb. Uh, the Hiroshima bomb was a different kind. It was just it was playing uranium-235, but they didn't have enough uranium-235. They had to come up with it with a, with, with a plutonium bomb. Uh, and this young Hall was put to work uh, in this part of the program. He had access to everything also. He was what was called a white badger. At his level, he had a white badge, and this entitled him to see everything, read all the reports, go to all the seminars. Uh, because uh, Oppenheimer believed that only by getting all the mines together could they get the bomb built in time. Uh, they thought they were racing the Nazis for the bomb. Well, it turned out that Theodore Hall was an idealistic young man, was a communist. He belonged to, uh, the, he belonged to this, the Communist Association, the John Reed Association at Harvard. Um, and right after he started working out in Los Alamos, he contacted the Soviets. He was what is called in the espionage business a walk-in. Uh, he contacted the Soviets, and he volunteered to spy for them, to turn over, all the inf- turn over regular reports on the, uh, on, uh, on what he was doing, on the building of the uh, atomic bomb. The security people at Los Alamos were a bunch of keystone cops. They were the, the, the Army Counterintelligence Corps was in charge of security there. And they had a great barbed wire fence that ran around the whole of Los Alamos, a vast thing, with guard towers. They had agents stationed in the, in the, in the hiding, in the, I mean, you know, posing as bartenders and barbers and God knows maybe hiding in brothels as well and all over the, the New Mexico area. But they never checked the backgrounds of anybody they lend in the gate. Uh, and so you, you could very easily have have found out that this young man was among the few students at Harvard who, who joined the Communist Association and therefore was not trustworthy. The other man they let in, who was the second important Soviet spy, was a German physicist named Klaus Fuchs, whom the British brought over and vouched for him. Uh, British counterintelligence was also in the nadir at the time. And Fuchs was a, a refugee from Hitler, because he was, not because he was Jewish, he was because he was a communist. Uh, he'd been involved in communist activities in England after he refugeed out of Germany in 1933. So the Soviets had the perfect uh, espionage setup at Los Alamos. I detail it in the book. They had two physicists, neither of whom knew that, that, that the other was a spy. Uh, so two trained eyes, in other words, who were giving them regular reports. 
on, on what they needed to know about how to build a, 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 an atomic bomb. Um, one, one, of the, one, one incident that I recount in the book, the, there was a courier who used to go out to pick up reports from, from Young Hall. She was a woman named Lana Cohen. She died in, 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 at the age of 92 in Moscow. She be, became a famous Soviet spy. And she came out and picked up his report, and they met in Santa Fe. He passed her the information, uh, written down in notes, uh, written down on pads, on pad sheets. And she hurried back to her hotel, packed up, and headed to the railroad station to go back to New York and turn the stuff over to the Soviet, the KGB types who were in the Soviet consulate in New York. And when she got to the train station, she, she, she saw that there were security people there, FBI or whatnot, who were searching the luggage of everybody getting on the train, men and women, what to do. So she went into the station, took these notes, put uh, with all this information on the A-bomb, put them in a box of Kleenex she had under the tissues, walked out just as the train was about to leave, and made believe she was the helpless female who couldn't get her pocketbook open. She put her bag down, and then she fumbled with uh, the box of Kleenex was under her arm, and she was fumbling with her pocketbook zipper. Um, and one of the uh, security guys, uh, then she turned and she took the box of Kleenex out from under her arm and handed it to one of the security men uh, and uh, zipped open the pocketbook. They searched the pocketbook. They searched the, the, the suitcase. And then they said, well, go ahead, madam. And uh, she was clever enough not to ask for that box of Kleenex. She just started walking toward the train knowing that the security guy probably was a gentleman, and he called it to her attention and he gave her back the Kleenex. And that's exactly what happened. He said, Madam, you forgot your Kleenex, and he handed it to her. Uh, it was the, the, uh, the other brother, the older brother, Theodore Hall, I mean the older brother, Edward Hall, Theodore, was, uh, developed the first uh, ex- uh, ultimate, developed the ultimate intercontinental ballistic missile, something called Minuteman. It was a solid, he, he worked for Schriever. He knew nothing about his brother's spying uh, until they were both in their very elderly years and in the twilight of their lives. That's when he learned about it. Uh, but Schriever, because uh, the brother was never arrested, they didn't want, they, they, they broke the Soviet codes out in New York, but they didn't want the Soviets to know they'd broken the codes, so they never arrested him and tried him. Uh, but uh, Edward Hall, uh, was an engineer, a brilliant engineer. He was the, the Air Force's guru on rocketry. And he built uh, Minuteman, which is a missile which is still on duty. There are 450 of them uh, on alert. They're the basis of the, they're the, base of, of the land-based deterrent. Um, what, 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 it's a solid-fueled weapon uh, which can be stored indefinitely. The, the guidance system is permanently running. And uh, you, 50 of these things can be launched within, uh, it takes about two or three minutes if you decode, uh, to decode the orders. Uh, and, but within one minute of the keys being turned in the missile, it's gone. <laughs> so that ended, that was, the, that ended the possibility of the, anyone launching a first strike against the, so, the United States. Because you couldn't get, by the t- even if your missiles were in the air, these things were going to be out of the out of the silos and gone, and you were going to destroy yourself. And they created uh, the stalemate, which Schriever was was was, and those who worked with him were trying to create. 
they created a situation in which neither the Soviet Union nor the United States could attempt a first strike against the other. Uh, it was a, it's, it's, the, the nuclear theorists refer to this thing as mad, mutual assured destruction. There's nothing mad about it. What it does is it deters no sane, no Soviet leader with an ounce of sanity was going to attempt to what was going to attempt the nuclear Pearl Harbor that Eisenhower had had, had feared. Um, we did come close during the Cuban Missile Crisis because of Khrushchev's adventurism. Uh, uh, but 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 uh, otherwise, we settled into a stalemate, which bought time. What these men these men not only bought us protection from a nuclear catastrophe, they also bought time in which the Soviet Union could collapse of its own inner contradictions. Now, no one foresaw that, but it turned out that that was the only solution to the Cold War. You couldn't solve problems like the division of Germany, so long as the Soviet Union was strong. You had to have a Soviet Union that was in the process of collapse. In 1989, for example, when, when, when Mikhail Gorbachev was trying to, desperately trying to hold the thing together, uh, and it was in the process of collapse, and then you, could, you, you had a reunification of Germany and a solution of other problems in Eastern Europe that you couldn't solve otherwise. Um, there, the, the, the saving us from nuclear Gadadamarung and buying time for the self-destruction of the Soviet Union wasn't the only thing they accomplished. They also opened a space for the United States. The first astronauts all went up on military missiles. Uh, John Glenn rode, circled the Earth in a modified hydrogen bomb capsule. A lot of this technology could be applied to, to, to uh, man's, man uh, travel in space because if you, if you bring, I don't know how many of you ever watched the comet come in the atmosphere, but if you do, it's very colorful. Uh, you see all the because the comet is burning up as it hits the atmosphere. The friction of the thicker air in the atmosphere causes it to burn up. Uh, so they had to figure out how to. If once they they fire, they launch this this bomb up into space, how are you going to bring it back down again without burning it up? They had to work out the technology to do that. So if you if you could bring a bomb back in, you could bring a man back in. <laughs> Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, that that's, that open space to to man travel. Uh, it it, um, it there was a, a missile gap, uh, but the missile gap was in our favor. Uh, John Kennedy uh, ran on on that. You may remember in 1960 on the charge that there was a missile gap. Uh, he was briefed on the fact that there wasn't, because by that time. Schriever and company, again, had launched the first photo reconnaissance satellite, a satellite that could go up and circle the Earth and take photographs of the Soviet Union from space. Uh, they, they, got, they did this in August of 1960. Kennedy was briefed on the fact that there was no evidence that there was a missile gap, and he stopped talking about it. But politics are a killer sport, and he didn't tell his supporters to stop talking about it. So Richard Nixon suffered the consequences. Uh, these men really were genuine American heroes. We owe them a great deal, and uh, it was it was uh, it was a privilege for me to work with them and to tell their story. Thank you very much. <laughs>